The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God, you declare your almighty power chiefly in showing mercy and pity. Grant us the fullness of your grace that we, running to obtain your promises, may become partakers of your heavenly treasure. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, before our readings, often at this time we invite children to come forward and we pray for them, but um, kids are going to be worshiping uh, with their uh, families um, today, so, so you guys actually can stay seated. I'm sorry, I'm psyching you out. Um, uh, but I still want to pray for the um, kids as they um, uh, uh, continue to be involved in the worship service this morning. Kids, just know we're really thankful uh, you are part of our church. So let's pray for you. Father, we're so thankful for um, uh, the children of this church. We pray, Lord, that you would enrich Build them up through our time of worship together. Bless their families on this Father's Day. We pray blessings on fathers and um, the responsibilities that they bear. And we give you thanks and praise that you are a good, good father. May you open each one of our eyes um, to that truth. Um, whether children or adults, may we um, know you in new and greater ways. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We'll continue with our readings. Our Old Testament reading comes from the book of Exodus. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people, peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand. We are going to read the Psalms together. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness and come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Glory to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. You may be seated. The New Testament reading today is found in the book of Romans, chapter 5. 
Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God <clears throat> by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The word of the Lord. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And the names of the 12 disciples are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Sumerians, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick and raise the dead, cleanse lepers and cast out demons. You received without pain, give without pay. Require no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, tunics um, sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. And as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone is not, will not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet and you will leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable in the day of judgment 
for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Well, this is one of those mornings where I'm sorry, you just are going to hear a lot of my voice. <clears throat> I won't sing my sermon, though. Um, I'm Pastor Andine O'Neill. I'm the pastor of Worship Arts, and sometimes I get the privilege of preaching. And we are in the third week of our Roman series. Um, in the very first book of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Magician's Nephew, we get to see Aslan breathe and sing Narnia into existence. Lewis paints the picture of the vigorous nature of the very substance of Narnia in its earliest days. Aslan spoke all things into existence, and then the fertile ground called forth growth and abundance from absolutely everything that was planted. An iron bar, a remnant from a lamp post in London, thrown in anger, grows into a Narnian lamppost. The gold and silver coins shaken out of Uncle Andrew's pockets grow gold and silver trees. The sticky paper-wrapped toffee Diggory and Polly plant in the hills turns quite immediately overnight into a very otherworldly tree with edible toffee-like fruits wrapped in paperish kind of thing. This is, of course, the stuff of Lewis's imagination, but as we look at Romans chapter 5, there's a connection I want us to make. The last two weeks have focused quite a bit on justification. In chapter 5, the first verse says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. This is Paul setting up his readers to hear, because of justification, the following is true. Or even, as we look at this together, you're going to see this more and more clearly. Paul is saying, due to our being justified by Christ, there are results or blessings, or shall we call them fruits, that we can expect to enjoy. See, at first glance, this Romans passage is full of systematic theology, which is good. Words and verses that we love, maybe somehow, though, perhaps because we're new to the faith, they seem complex and strange, or maybe because we're not at all new to the faith, they seem overly familiar, and they hit us as theoretical truths that we appreciate, but they're kind of lacking that tangible, graspable reality we desire. Well, what I want us to do this morning is look at this passage together in a way that allows us to see how justification is planted in the soil of our souls. And yes, this will require some imagination, but perhaps we can see the real and life-changing fruit that grows out of that poignant doctrine. So what are the fruits of justification? Paul outlines three. Very clearly, you could tell me them having read the, heard the Romans passage just now. We've obtained peace... We presently have access to him, and we rejoice in our future hope, even in our sufferings. So first, we have obtained peace. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This peace is hugely significant, but we'll only understand it if we know why we needed peace in the first place. When we disobey God, of course, we break his laws. But in doing so, we exert and flaunt our right to do that. I'm not obeying you, I'm obeying me. This is claiming kingship over yourself. Tim Keller talks about this. If, you're, if, if God is king, asks you one thing, and you assert yourself as king and say, your jurisdiction doesn't apply, mine does. There's conflict. You are not at peace. 
Right now, Russia is trying to assert itself as the sovereign power over the same areas where Ukraine has been accustomed to sovereignty. Well, then there's war. God isn't Russia or Ukraine here, I want to be clear, but I do want to draw this distinction. God's anger, God's wrath, it's not vengeful. It's not the rage of revenge. It's not out to get you. The judgment and punishment of God is legal. Look at our Old Testament passage from Exodus 19. We see God outlining the covenant with his people, a binding agreement based on obedience to God. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. They say, yeah, great, we'll do that. Well, it didn't go very well. They didn't obey. At times they did, at times individuals did, but overall, Israel failed again and again. They wandered, they declared themselves king, and they went their own way. Look at our Matthew 9 passage today. Jesus is calling the 12 apostles and telling them, go to the lost sheep of Israel. Go to the ones who are under judgment because of the breaking of the covenant. And it'll be worse for them than Sodom and Gomorrah if they don't receive you, my disciples, who represent me, Christ. And I want to show them the way to real peace. And then here in Romans, Paul's letter to the Roman church, Paul is saying, since we've been justified, our debt was paid through Christ's blood. The balance of the scales is even. God's wrath is satisfied. We are acquitted of guilt and, our, and of our attempt to be king. We now have peace with the real king. Note, this isn't about feeling peace. That's the peace of God. This is peace with God. What the Old Testament prophecies declared God would bring to his people in the last days. There are now no more hostilities between us. The war has ceased. We are now friends. So in this first fruit of justification, this peace, we see something remarkable, a fruit, dare I say, not of this world. It's too unusual, too special. Can you imagine a peace treaty that looks anything like this? Those of you who love history, those of you who read the news or even just read headlines, has there been a time when you've read something about a peace treaty and thought, wow, that country was so self-sacrificing for that other country. Country A had every right to punish country B, who was their enemy, who wronged them. But in order to stop the war and ensure peace, country A sacrificed their own people to death. And then by their own resources, ensured a loving connection and friendship with country B forever and ever. Amen. That hasn't happened, and it won't happen. But such is our God. His love does work this way. And we do get to enjoy the fruit of justification as peace with God. Our second fruit, we stand in grace. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we have access into grace. This word access means something like introduction, the ability to know and be connected with someone. We have access to the throne room of a monarch. We have the credentials to enter the throne room. And our credentials, they're not for a photo op. They're not for a five-minute conversation. They're a lifetime membership. And I'm sorry to steal from later on in our Roman series, they're actually adoption papers. And stand, we stand. The tense of that verb is present. We currently, presently stand here in the presence of God, in his grace. We are right now 
welcome to come to him as a child with our thoughts, our fears, our praises, our questions, our doubts. We are to remain near to him all our days. And this, again, is a very otherworldly fruit. It's not what we would have expected of a king. Now, um, I know a doctor who was asked to provide care for a Middle Eastern king. He arrived at the scheduled time and expected to examine the king and give his medical opinion. But he did not. He waited and waited. And not because the king was gone or the king was busy attending to important matters, but the king was sleeping. And you don't wake a sleeping king. The doctor was told that the king had never been awoken, and he only sees others when he naturally awakes. After many hours of doing nothing but waiting, he was able to see the king, but by that time, it was the very middle of the night. Our God is the exact opposite of this. We have a favorable position, not just the removal of hostility, not even just indifference or acquaintanceship, but we have a friendship with God. We are not told to wait. We are told to run. He wants you near him now. Seek him out. Nurture and tend to this relationship. Don't take this fruit for granted. Now, the third fruit. The third fruit Paul describes is... um, the fruit of our future hope, and we rejoice in it. The English word for hope means wishfully considering the outcome of something up ahead. And this is not what the Greek word means. Caseman, a theologian, sums it up by saying, hope is the prospect of what is already guaranteed. It is certainty, but something we haven't seen in its certain form, so we set our sights on something we can't yet experience in full, but we know it's coming. This is, of course, in reference to the final and eschatological judgment of all creation. Christ's followers are certainly and completely saved from this wrath, and we can look forward to a future unbroken togetherness with the Father and the restoration of all things, and there will be no end. First, we have peace with God, having been saved by his blood in the past. Second, we presently enjoy a relationship with God, and we stand in his grace. And third, we will one day enjoy the full consummation of all things. As we realize the impact of the first two, the third becomes more and more dear to us. The one who saved you wants to sustain you and be with you forever. And there are no preconditions for this. None. You are justified by Christ, and therefore these fruits, these otherworldly fruits, are meant to grow in you. What wondrous love is this? What a joyful set of truths. And so, yes, as our passage says, we rejoice in this. Paul tells us so, and it's only the most natural thing to do, to live a life of joy and peace in the presence and hope of God. Well, it's not maybe quite so simple. And in true Pauline form, Paul anticipates a few of the questions that his readers might have, and maybe you have the same ones. The first question is this. How can justification really lead to things like peace, to standing in his presence, and to have a sure hope of the future when we are still suffering? How does that work in a way where we can know that all this comes from a loving God when life is not very peaceful? Well, Paul has an answer for us. He says, well, actually, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. 
Now, not for our sufferings. We don't actually want suffering. Some people actually may feel this way. They may feel assuaged of their own guilt if they suffer. Some people to, might enjoy a sense of an edge over their neighbor if they have had a harder life than them, like they are more deserving. Or others, of course, desire to use suffering as a sense of works righteousness, that they've earned God's grace and favor because they've suffered. Please don't do any of these things. Um, it won't earn you any favor with God, and it will make you miserable. But please do rejoice in your sufferings, or kind of during them, or with the right perspective as you walk through them. Because all these fruits of justification are still true. And in fact, if we're standing in the presence of God in this gospel truth, our sufferings actually enhance our perspective. Suffering brings a chain of virtues that cannot be garnered any other way. Suffering leads to perseverance, endurance. This word means single-mindedness, an unswerving constancy, a dogged focus on what's important. You won't be turned aside by distractions or barriers. Then this perseverance, endurance, leads to character. And this word character implies being tested. You're not a new recruit, but a veteran. Someone who can meet a challenge with strength and confidence and experience, having been through it before. There are so many high-stakes jobs where I think of someone needing to do something for the first time and wondering what kind of panic there might be, either in them or the people they're doing it with or whatever. Like a first-time brain surgeon, an astronaut, a skyscraper crane operator, explosives experts, Obviously, that's not an exhaustive list, but consider your surgeon saying to you, this is my first time, but you're cool with that, right? Well, as you know, probably, in all these jobs, there are training programs, apprenticeships, apprenticeships, residencies, extensive supervision plans that slowly increase the autonomy at just the right pace testing them, or quite literally building them up in skill and confidence to prepare them for what's ahead. And in the Christian life, God makes use of sufferings in this way for us, to ignite a chain of virtues in our lives. Suffering leads to perseverance, endurance, to character, and this character fans a flame of certain hope, a hope that realizes that the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. You see, it's, it's far too easy to grasp, grasp for false senses of peace and joy. You know this. It's easy to push the real fruits away and find peace and joy in comfort, in wealth, in health, in popularity. But first of all, all these things are fleeting. They're all going to go away no matter how easy your life is. But second of all, in suffering, these are all the things you lose. And then where's your joy? It's gone. If you can grasp or know with your whole self that you're loved, that there's nothing that you can do to make God love you less because you've already been justified, you'll find joy. And this is real. This is lasting. And it will, I promise, give you cause to rejoice even in the hardest times. We can rejoice in this because we know what God's done for us. We know whose we are and we know what we have to look forward to. The second question Paul anticipates us asking is about assurance. He, he anticipates his readers being like, okay, this is great news, but how can we be sure? 
How can we really know that we're saved? Well, Paul has an answer. And his answer starts and ends with love. I thought this was funny as I was doing research. More than one commentator wrote about how Paul gets such a bad rap for not caring about love, that he's argumentative and intense, but he loves love. See how he loves love. This is the moment. You guys, see how Paul loves love. He loves the love of God. Um, He says all of this has to do with God's love, and God's love is not an experience only. It's also a person. He gives the Holy Spirit to us, and it's through him that God's love has been poured out into our hearts. This term poured indicates abundance and extravagance. The Holy Spirit's presence with us is the inauguration of the new covenant. The Lord took care of the terms of the old covenant and has given us the new one. Humanity failed the old covenant, but God took the punishment and then sustains, comforts, and guides us with the presence of the Spirit himself within us. And this is the seal, the promise, the assurance of God. And God keeps his promises. We've seen that all over scripture, and we must trust the same faithfulness applies to us. This hope will not disappoint because it cannot disappoint. God's hope is certain, and he sends his spirit to ensure us. We have a member of the Trinity with us to empower and guide us. God's gift of the Spirit puts our everyday experience, even our mundane things, or even our extraordinary things, in the realm of the miraculous power of God. Try to lean into that a little bit. But Paul's not even done yet. There's more assurance. He continues on the theme of God's love. While we were enemies, or on hostile terms with one another, before the peace, he died for us. This is a sacrifice we don't have a category for in this world. And and Paul agrees and says, in essence, probably no one would die for an upright person. Maybe for one who's also warm and caring and good, someone would be brave and loving enough to die. But Christ dies for those who are opposed to him, against him, sinners, enemies, who have not earned any such love. That's extravagance. And then this is our assurance. And Paul says this a few different ways in verses 9 and 10. If when we were enemies, God reconciled to us, being justified by his blood, how much more can we be sure that we are saved in every future sense now that he lives? Theologian Hodge put it this way, if while we were enemies, we were restored to the favor of God by the death of his son, the fact that he lives will certainly secure our final salvation. He will not abandon you. You are Christ's brother sister, and friend. We know the terms for justification are from the court of law, but terms like reconciliation, they're personal and relational in nature. They're about coming together and repairing a relationship after a quarrel. It's about being reunited. These terms are not used and referenced in the literature of other religions because humans and gods in their literature don't relate personally. These terms wouldn't have been necessary or useful. But our God, the true God, cares about our relationship. And he's put our quarrel behind him, and he seeks to be united with you, united with us, and and love you as his own. There's now no need to worry about the future. It's set. It's sealed. It's done. He's your friend. He's the king. He loved you then, and he loves you now, and our salvation is sure at the end. And this is cause for joy.
The word rejoice, used in this passage a few times, carries a connotation of boasting or proclaiming and kind of like enjoying your boasting and proclaiming. Theologian Brunner prefers to use the term revel. We revel in these things. Joy is the marker of a justified person, exhibiting the fruit of these lived-in truths. It's another outward sign of what is flourishing at the heart of a believer. And this life is a crazy beautiful thing. It's actually hard, um, but hard can be beautiful. Rejoicing in the here and now is actually a muscle we have to utilize to strengthen it. Happiness only occurs when our external circumstances make us happy. Circumstances change and boom, happiness gone. But joy, that's cultivated from within and it can withstand and coexist with even the most severe sorrow. Joy doesn't mean letting go of sorrow. Joy means you can hold sorrow and still recall the truths of God's love for you. We don't justify ourselves at all. That's not our work. That's God's. But we can cultivate an earnest closeness with the Father in the Spirit through Christ, through things like continued prayer, conversation with our Lord, through Bible reading, and through all the spiritual disciplines as well. Put simply, I'm saying we should know him and walk with him. And as we follow Christ, there is a growth trajectory, a maturity trajectory that he asks us to be on. Not to earn his love or favor, but in order to more closely imitate Christ, proclaim the gospel, display these fruits, and frankly, to experience his blessings in navigating this world. Sean and I have a lilac bush we bought on Mother's Day. It's tiny. It's never produced a single bloom, but it's alive. It is not flourishing. Frankly, it's never really grown at all. Now, you may be thinking, and team, give it time. Mother's Day was like a month ago. It's Father's Day today. Well, no, we planted this three or four Mother's Days ago. We didn't nourish it especially intentionally in its first year or afterward. We didn't put a fence up around it to protect it from rabbits or deer, of which we have many. And we just didn't do what we could to cultivate a healthy, growing environment for it. So we kind of watched it struggle where it might have thrived. So here's a different story. Some of you may have seen this story about four children who were lost in the Amazon jungle for 40 days alone. In the Amazon jungle, their small plane went down and their mother and the other adults were killed, but the children were alive, ages 13, 9, 4, and when the crash happened, an 11-month-old who turned one in the jungle with her older siblings, or his older siblings. They cared for an infant together. All the news stories report almost no one could have survived this, no matter their age, let alone four small children. But the children did have one great advantage. They were indigenous and had been raised in the ways of the jungle. They had cultivated a perseverant character, tested for, the, for jungle survival. They knew how to find fruit and from which trees, and they had a sense of, I'm just assuming, how to steer clear of jaguars and venomous snakes and who knows what else. The summary statement was that they survived because they were children of the jungle. Whom are we children of? We're children of God. 
we can navigate this world. It has dangers, it really does. We can survive in a broken world though, even alongside pain and sorrow because we are children of God. We are justified. We have peace with him and we stand in his presence. And we have a certain hope of the promised future, of the ultimate salvation to enjoy. Let these truths be planted in you. Let their fruit grow in you, this otherworldly fruit, and rejoice and revel in the hope of glory because it is coming. Amen. Lord, I pray that you would grow in us these fruits that we may be less conscious of cultivating. I pray that you would um, make us sensitive to the presence of your Holy Spirit in our hearts. And even as we go about our regular days, Lord, help us be people who proclaim your goodness to the world through imitating you. Amen. Please stand. We'll take a moment to wipe our eyes um, as we're reminded of that beautiful, important truth that we are children of God. Amen.